Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you back to this week's edition of the podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman. How are you, sir? Thank God, Pastor. Great to talk to you. All is good over here in Israel. Very hot. Very hot. Very hot. Well, uh, I'll be back there in a few weeks, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. But right now, we do want to get into a news story of the week before we talk about this week's Torah portion. And the news story is a confirmation of a news story that everyone seemed to know about, but the Israeli government announced it and confirmed it, and that is back in 2007... The Israeli military, specifically the Air Force, conducted bombing raids and destroyed a nuclear reactor in Syria. And again, this has been widely reported, but the Israeli government has never confirmed it until now. First point is, why do you think the Israeli government has been so hesitant to share it, but now was willing to share it now, 11 years later, doing what they think needed to be done to protect Israel's survival. Why do you think the news of the destruction of the Syrian nuclear reactor came out this past week? When Israel makes a decision, like they did uh, over a decade ago, to destroy the Syrian nuclear reactor, uh, Israel, at the same time, the Israeli army was completely prepared for the possibility of an all-out war with Syria. All-out war. And the soldiers had no idea why they were preparing for war, but they were prepared for war. And the generals assumed there was at least a 50-50 chance that that was going to happen. But the, the, the tact that Israel took was, if we don't come out openly and take credit and talk about it and show the video and everything else, perhaps that could put Assad in a place where the best thing for him to do would not be to attack Israel. Where he could say, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, there was no nuclear reactor. It was beneficial for Assad to not necessarily acknowledge that he was building a nuclear reactor, beneficial for him in the international community, and beneficial for him even in Syria, where many of his people didn't know about it. So Israel, as it tried to gauge, on the one hand, we 100% must get rid of a Syrian nuclear reactor. Pastor, you can only imagine what the world would be like today if Assad, dealing with his civil war and dealing with international pressure, if he had a nuclear weapon. So just like we did in the early 1980s in Iraq, Israel made a decision, we're taking out the nuclear reactor. But now the question is, what are there things that we can do along the way that can prevent Syria from attacking Israel. And the decision was, let's just stay quiet. Let's just make sure that Assad has his way or reason not to attack Israel, and that he might decide that's beneficial not to attack Israel. And therefore, it was kept completely quiet. 2,500 people were involved in the operation, from the prime minister down to engineers that uh, put the technicians that put the bombs on the airplane. And all 2,500 of them signed an agreement that they are promising to keep quiet about it. And it got nowhere in terms of any official Israeli acknowledgement. The biggest thing Israel was nervous about was anybody knowing about it beforehand and stopping us from doing it. And we were able to do it. And with God's help, we were able to succeed. 
And with God's help, we were able to make sure that Assad didn't attack. Now, as to why the decision was made to release the information now, uh, I'm not in the know uh, on the security side to have clarity about that. But it's very possible that it was important for a message to be sent to various regimes in the world that, if necessary, Israel will take action against them as well. There is a sentence that your prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu, likes to say, and that is, Israel will protect itself by itself. And what he means is we have all of our partners, the Americans and others who are supporters of ours and military allies with us. But if it comes down to it, Israel will protect itself by itself, showing that the Israeli military and the Israeli government is self-protective. That is, they are capable of protecting their own people without relying on somebody else. That is very true. And it's, you know, it's important, I think, for people all around the world, people sitting in the United States, to really understand that. We're dealing with a real live situation of countries on our borders, rogue regimes, dictators, vicious people who kill hundreds of thousands of people who are trying to get nuclear weapons. People who outright say that Israel and the United States is their determined enemy. So in the United States, there's an ocean in between. There's a few thousand miles, so it's a little bit more removed. For Israel, it's not removed. For Israel, it's our day-to-day lives right here where we have to fear waking up one morning with someone just kilometers away having a nuclear weapon while determined to destroy us. And Israel cannot listen to the world saying, let's deal with it in a diplomatic way. We'll talk with them. Let's give them some more time. There's no time. Uh, Just to understand, they were very nervous as they were approaching this attack that they were coming up against the clock because once a reactor goes hot, you can't bomb it. You can't destroy it uh, militarily at that point. And they had to act very quickly once they got the intelligence information to make sure they could destroy it before that happened. And we couldn't wait. We can't wait for the world to, to make a decision. And we took the risk. We took the risk both in terms of our pilots flying into Syria. That's part one. And we took the risk of the possibility of war afterwards. But we did it. And not only am I proud that Israel acts exactly the way the prime minister said, which is we act um, according to what we need for our security. We can't wait for the green light from the world. I think the world over time begins to appreciate that. I think the world appreciated years later that we bombed and destroyed uh, Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor. And hopefully today people are waking up and reading the news and and watching uh, what we did. And people even sitting in Texas and other places sitting back and thankful that Israel took that action in 2007, that we don't have to deal with a reality of, of Assad with nuclear weapons. We obviously do not want a brutal dictator like Bashar al-Assad to have nuclear weapons, the man who's killed hundreds of thousands of his own citizens without nuclear weapons. What more damage could he have done if he had those? And as we wrap up this part of the conversation, before we talk about the Torah portion, Rabbi, remind our listeners, this is not an academic thing for you. This is very personal. Your own son serves right now in the Israeli military. Absolutely. I'm blessed to have a a son who's a wonderful young man who is now a a commander in an elite combat unit, the Golani unit. They are hard at work preparing to defend Israel if necessary. There's talk about things heating up on the northern border with Hezbollah and towards Syria. And every single discussion about Israel's security 
is personal now. Every talk about, oh, we might have to go to war is something which brings fright and more intense prayers. And it's not just theoretical, like you said, Pastor. It's very, very real. It's our home front. You know, I grew up in the United States, and I want to be very clear. I'm so appreciative to the U.S. soldiers, people in the military, including yourself, who have done everything they've done over the years to provide the freedom that we had growing up in America. My father-in-law was over in, in Vietnam and was in the Army. My wife grew up on U.S. military bases, so I'm very well aware of the role the U.S. military has played. But the one thing that I'll say is I, growing up in America, wasn't growing up on the battlefield. Uh, and that's largely because our soldiers went overseas and dealt with things overseas. In Israel, we are the battlefield. We're talking about kilometers away from our homes that these issues are taking place. It's not over there being deployed to the Middle East. We're in the Middle East. We're here surrounded by these radical jihadist regimes that celebrate death and don't value life. And our kids all go to the army, and these sweet kids are, are thrown into very, very difficult uh, situations and are training to protect us and defend us. And it's very real on a day-to-day -day basis here. Um, I have to be honest with you. Over the last week in Israel, we lost young souls. Uh, last Friday, two soldiers are just doing their job protecting Jewish neighborhood, and a Palestinian terrorist takes a car and runs them over and 21 and 20 years old, and that's it. That's it here. That's not overseas. That's here uh, in our country. A young 32-year-old father was walking home from work in Jerusalem, the holy city for all faiths, just walking home from work, and a Palestinian terrorist stabbed him to death uh, beginning this week, father of four children. Uh, this is what we're dealing with, and we need people's prayers. That's first and foremost. Everyone who loves and supports Israel, the prayers are, are very much welcome. We need the support of people to put members of Congress in who are supportive of Israel and will continue to strengthen the alliance that we have. And just a recognition that when you hear people bad-mouthing Israel, stand up for Israel and, and, and describe to them what I just told you, and that we stand for good and for justice and human rights and, and religious freedom for all, and that we're dealing with a very complex situation where we are literally living on the battlefield. We ask our Jewish and Christian listeners to pray Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is Psalm 122, verse 6, a commandment from God to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. And as Rabbi Lippman describes, it's very present. It's not theoretical. The presence of danger, the presence of forces who would like to destroy you, when you are in the land of Israel, the Holy Land, it's a very real situation. It's reality for them every day. And yet they continue to go on with their life and move forward. They don't live in a state of fear, but they live in a state of vigilance. And the Israeli military is a very well-trained, a moral army. They're not perfect. No military is perfect, of course, but very well-trained and very dedicated to the cause because they are defending their own family members as the rabbi explained. So, Rabbi, one last point here. How would you like our Christian audience especially to be praying for your son and his colleagues in the IDF? 
Well, I'm happy that you added those last words at the end, Pastor, because, it's, uh, of course, I love my son dearly, and we pray for him, but we pray for all the soldiers. And I think if everyone starts their day and, and offers a prayer uh, that God should protect the, the soldiers of Israel who are on the front lines, ensuring that all people of faith can live freely, visit freely, worship freely in the Holy Land, uh, that is something which... Uh, we would be eternally grateful for, and we, we so believe in the power of prayer. You look at the story of Israel, there's no way militarily to explain the success that we've had defending ourselves against uh, enemies on every single border who want to destroy us, and it's clearly uh, God who has brought that salvation, and therefore those prayers would be uh, so appreciated, and I don't have a doubt that they would be extremely effective. Let's turn our attention to this week's Torah portion, and we want to talk about the portion with the title Tzav. It means command in Hebrew, and this week's Torah portion, the Bible reading that Jews have been studying together every week on Shabbat for over 2,000 years, this week's Torah portion comes from Leviticus chapters 6, 7, and 8, and We studied the beginning of Leviticus last week and the very specific instructions that the Lord gives about the conduct of the priest and how to handle the sacrifices. And then we get to Leviticus chapter 6, and the Lord says to Moses, this is the command you are to give to Aaron. And so it is a very detailed assignment given to Aaron, the brother of Moses, who becomes the father of all the priests, the Kohanim in Israel. And Rabbi, I'd like to begin our conversation with verse 13 of chapter 6. Leviticus 6.13 is talking about the fire on the altar, and it says, The fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. So I'd like your commentary on what the importance of the fire is. I'll give you a few thoughts that we as Christians understand, that fire is associated with the presence of God. We remember the people of Israel leaving captivity in Egypt, and they were led by the Lord in the wilderness. At night, they had the pillar of fire. So the fire is the presence of God, and one commentary calls it the protecting guide for the people. And so the perpetual burning of the fire represents the perpetual presence of God. But it's not just a fire, it's a burnt offering that the fire is there for. And so it's our perpetual need for the atonement of sin, that we are sinful people and we continually need to be made right before the Lord. So talk about in your understanding why the fire in the burnt offerings for the tabernacle and later the temple, why the fire was never allowed to go out. First of all, we certainly would agree with the the idea that you said uh, in terms of representing God and the relationship with God and God's presence being there. It's also the fire on the altar. The altar represented the, the giving ourselves over to God, the worship. And the message there is also very much... You know, there are the moments when you go to the temple and you offer the sacrifice, and those are obviously very intense moments of worship and intense closeness. But when you walk away from there, worship doesn't end. Uh, Worship continues all the time. It must be there always. Uh, And it's not, you know, flick on the switch and then turn it off and walk away. Uh, We go to synagogue, you go to church. Those are intense moments and important moments, but they're mostly important because they give us the wherewithal to continue spiritually when we're not there. And therefore, the fire on the altar burns all the time. Worship of God continues uh, all the time, wherever we are. 
it's always available for us to come to and intensify it by coming to the temple, but it has to be something which continues always. And that's very much uh, the message that we would take from that concept. Just before that, in Leviticus chapter 6, the command by the Lord to Moses, to Aaron, to the priests about handling the burnt offering and the altars. And one of the very practical realities of burning animal meat continuously for all of these sacrifices is there will be lots of ashes there. And in verse 10, the priest is told to put on his linen robe, his dress clothing, his dress uniform, you might call it for a soldier. And then in verse 11, he's supposed to put on his other garments, his work clothes, in order to take the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So God even cares enough about the elements of worship that he cares about the clean versus the dirty, and even our menial tasks can be done as an honor to the Lord. It's a critical point, uh, Pastor, that you raise in highlighting this point, because I think it even goes beyond menial. You know, you would think, okay, there were sacrifices at nighttime, everyone goes to sleep, and the next day we start the next day with the service. And I would expect the next day's commandments to be sacrifices and prayers. And the Bible here, God is saying the first holy work of the day is cleaning the ashes uh, off the temple, this dirty work which even required changing their clothing, but that's holy work because it's being done for the spiritual. Uh, All of us know that whether it's a church or a synagogue or other things that people are doing that are holy pursuits, there's always the physical work uh, that's not very spiritual, that's required, the taking out the trash, the sweeping, the technical work, uh, and, and the custodial work in any place. We're being taught over here such an important message. That's spiritual. That's holy work. That's spirituality. People who jump to the occasion to help with that, that's spiritual uh, in nature. And that's the first holy work in the temple every day is cleaning up the ashes uh, from the night before. And the message is so powerful uh, in terms of how we should view some of the physical work and the the unpleasant elements uh, of being in a physical world and having to deal with our holy places and uh, other uh, physical parts of the world in which we live. And uh, you're a pastor of a, of a church. You know all the work that goes into making uh, a church run and, and all the people who either sometimes sadly shy away or those who jump to, to help out with all of that. And the message here is that's holy work. You're exactly right. There's a lot of things that happen every week in our church that you call them behind-the-scenes work. Somebody's cleaning the place. Somebody's mowing the grass. Somebody's moving the tables around and setting up the chairs. And and if we have a meal, somebody has to cook the meal. And all of these things are behind the scenes. But when the majority of the church family arrives and the event goes on smoothly, you're tempted to not even think about who set up the place or who cooked the meals or who cleaned the floors or vacuumed or painted the walls and all of those things. And I like your point to say even our menial tasks, even our behind-the-scenes tasks can be honoring to the Lord if our heart is in the right place. If we're doing those tasks with anger or jealousy or resentment, God's not honored by that. But if we're doing those tasks as a way to honor God, to bless God, to bless the people of God, even if the world doesn't applaud us, I think God applauds us for carrying out the faithful work that needs to be done. Very much so. And I really, really believe that 
uh, you know, you open up a portion this week, and it's the first amongst the first verses that you read, before a whole bunch of other laws about things that might be clearly very spiritual. Uh, this really sets that tone. Let's go to Leviticus chapter seven as we keep talking about this week's Torah portion. And there's an idea of peace offerings and then thanksgiving offerings. And one of the characteristics, I believe, of a person who knows God personally is they are a thankful person. We say as Christians, no one should be more thankful than the person who has been forgiven by God. If we have been accepted by the Lord, as we understand through the the sacrifice of Jesus, then we have been forgiven And we should never get over that. We should never stop being thankful. So many of the offerings that we've discussed in these Torah portions have been sin offerings, atonement offerings, asking the Lord to forgive us of our sins, and we need those. But sometimes we need to be thankful before the Lord to say, Todah Adonai, thank you, Lord, for all the gifts you've given to us. And go ahead and please give us some teachings here. Leviticus chapter 7 talks about specifically Thanksgiving offerings, and there's some insights you want to share. So first of all, uh, Pastor, it's possible that many of the listeners don't realize this, but the term Jew, which comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah, which was the primary tribe that uh, was not exiled early uh, when the temple was destroyed, and therefore we were the people of we are the people of Judah. We the other tribes were lost. That name comes from our matriarch Leah, who named her fourth son Judah, Yehuda, from the word Todah, which means giving thanks. So the essence of who we are, even the name, is giving thanks to God. This is a big part of our ritual about our faith is focusing on this giving thanks. It's what we call hakarat hatov, recognizing the good that's been done to us. And if you look carefully at the verses for this thanks offering, this is a person who wants to give thanks to God, all of a sudden we start seeing all kinds of other foods that have to be eaten together with the sacrifice. The sacrifice itself is eaten, the meat, and then it starts talking about all kinds of loaves of bread that come along as well. We, we count up to 40 loaves of bread that have to be eaten. And then we're told that none of it can be left over until the next morning. It says that anything left over has to be, uh, has to be eaten that day. And it's we're commanded. You cannot leave it over till morning in verse 15 in chapter 7. And the commentaries talk about why. Why, why is there this command to eat all this food, 40 loaves of bread with an entire animal by morning? It's impossible. And the commentaries say that's exactly right. It's impossible for one person to do so. And therefore, any person who brings a thanks offering would have to invite many people over to eat and enjoy this feast. And the concept is that thanks to God cannot be limited to yourself. It's not something you keep inside, but we have a responsibility to share with others. Anybody who wants to offer thanks to God would have to, by law, by the ritual law, invite other people, share what happened to him, share the glory of God. That's the kind of people that we have to do. Thanks is not just keeping it to ourselves, but sharing with others, inspiring others, hopefully bringing other people closer to God uh, along the way. And that's commanded right here in the offering uh, to give thanks. And I have to imagine that this notion of sharing thanks for God is something which our, our faiths both share. We very much believe that negativity is contagious and positivity is contagious, said a more spiritual way. 
unfaithfulness to the Lord is contagious and faithfulness to the Lord is contagious. And what you're talking about is when I am thankful to the Lord, when I am a grateful person, that is contagious. People will catch on to that and emulate that. And your teaching about this is too much food for one person to consume is the real world living out of it being contagious. That I bring my friends along to worship the Lord with me, and we serve the Lord together, thanking him for his forgiveness and his mercy toward us. But, Rabbi, this passage also deals with the opposite of disobedience to the Lord, and I want you to share with us a very troubling phrase. It comes from Leviticus chapter 7. It's repeated a number of times. Verse 21 has it. Verse 25 has it. Verse 27 has it. It says that if a person does certain things that are disobedient, if they don't follow the commands of the Lord, the phrase is, he shall be cut off from his people. What does that phrase mean for you? That is subject to so much discussion to understand exactly uh, what that means. But the bottom line answer, if I could give it across the board, is we believe in a covenant with God and a relationship uh, with God. And that relationship is a relationship which certainly exists in the current world that we live in, in the physical world. And it's one that we believe continues with the soul in the spiritual world. But it's based on a relationship. Uh, The world to come, heaven, is not some kind of a magical gift which is given to someone, but we create a spiritual reality and relationship with God uh, during our lifetimes, and that reality continues uh, after a person passes away in heaven in the world to come. A person who goes against the laws of God and chooses to do things their own way and breaks that relationship, that person uh, cuts himself off from God and therefore does not have the basis for the relationship to continue beyond. And that's the way we understand the Hebrew term is karet. It means being cut off. It's not God coming and saying, I'm here to punish you for what you've done wrong. It's just a void. There's a, there's a lack of a relationship. It doesn't exist. Uh, and therefore, you've essentially cut yourself off from the divine, and there's no ability to continue onward with that relationship on a spiritual level uh, once a person has passes on. A very harsh reality, uh, very difficult for us to truly grasp, uh, we don't recognize the impact of our actions, and we, we're not in tune enough with our spiritual souls, but also shocking us into reality as well, making us realize, wow, maybe there is a lot for us to think about in terms of the notion of relationships and God and what happens after we pass away with that relationship continuing. I don't know uh, what the Christian faith has to say about uh, this, this kind of uh, concept. Well, I think we would try to answer it this way. There are consequences for our sin, and if we choose to turn our back on the Lord, we are cutting ourselves off from the people of God and a relationship with God. And so you could argue that God cut the person off, or you could choose to say it that the person cut themselves off. They walked away from the Lord. So just as we have the opportunity by the way God created us with free will that we can walk toward him, We can choose to walk away from him, and each of those decisions has a spiritual consequence. Walking toward the Lord, coming back to him, repenting of sin, receiving salvation, those are walking toward the Lord, and we are included in the family of God. 
If I choose to reject the offer of forgiveness, if I choose in the Christian terminology to reject Jesus, then I walk away from him, then I have not only been cut off, but I have cut myself off from the Lord. So there are consequences for our decisions. And that's really the message here. It's something which you see throughout in the Bible. It's reminding us that there are consequences, that there are realities. This is not just a game. There's real tangible things that happen through the various spiritual elements of life. And that's reinforced over and over again, Pastor, like you said, in these verses. Let's talk about chapter 8, as we have discussed chapters 6 and 7 of Leviticus. And now we get to chapter 8. And there's the idea of ordination and the institution of the priesthood, that Moses was the key leader for the people of Israel, leading them out of slavery in Egypt, now moving them toward the promised land. His older brother Aaron was his assistant, if you will, his spokesperson. But now the Lord, in his divine plan, chooses the family line of Aaron to be the priests. And so when we get to chapter 8, There's this preparation period where all of the people were to gather together and to praise the Lord and to bless and consecrate and ordain the sons of Aaron to become the priests. Talk about why do you think God chose Aaron and why do you think this one family line was chosen and then what are their responsibilities as priests going forward? Judaism very much believes that people have, that different groups have different roles, and we're very comfortable with that. You know, today we live in a world where it's not PC to say specific genders or groups uh, have have very specific roles uh, to play. It's not to say that people can't go beyond those roles, but in general terms, that's how a society can really function very well. It's not to say that someone is higher or lower than anyone else. It's just we need people to take on certain responsibilities. Service in the temple required people who were focused exclusively on the spiritual. They could not be people who were engaged in day-to-day farming and agriculture and other things in terms of earning a living. They had to be focused on the spiritual. They were to be supported by the people so they can know that they are here to focus exclusively on the spiritual and be holy people in the holiest place in the temple. Aaron was viewed as a person who really symbolizes peace someone who was able to get along with everyone, respect everyone. He made peace between people. By the way, he's the older son, uh, older brother, I'm sorry, of Moses. And Moses returns back after years away from Egypt. And Moses was nervous, specifically about his brother. What would his brother's reaction be? And God tells him, not only is Aaron happy for you, he's coming out to greet you right now. That's the first act that we see Aaron doing in the Bible, in the Torah, and that captures his essence. A person who had no ego was willing to accept whatever God decided was correct, including his younger brother coming back as the Savior, a person of peace, and he established a tone for his children to be the ones to serve in the temple. People serving in the temple cannot be people of ego. They cannot be in it for themselves. It has to be purely for God. They can't be people who see themselves as better or higher than anyone else because they're there. And Aaron was the one who really captured that. And they worshipped in the temple. They were there to take care of all the sacrifices. They were there to take care of everything that was needed for the worship in the temple. And they were supported by the people of Israel through various things. First of all, parts of some of the sacrifices, through something which we call truma, which was uh, a tithe which we offered, and other tithes as well. There was a whole system in place to support them, but they were the ones who exclusively, they were the priests in the sense that they 
took care of all the worship element in the temple. Today, sadly, we don't have that. Uh, we do have the priestly family still. And by the way, Pastor, uh, there have been some tests done and DNA tests done, and you can chase the, the, the chain of Aaron's genes and, and in the group of people that we call the Kohanim today. Today, they bless the congregation on a daily basis as the priestly blessings. They are given the first, what we call Aliyah, they go to the Torah first when we read the Torah portion and different people are called up. There are certain honors that are given to them, but we're waiting uh, certainly for a time when they can be again the priests who function in the context of a temple. Both Christians and Jews believe that a new temple will be rebuilt, the third temple, and the priestly system in Israel will be reestablished. Ezekiel talks about this and other prophets do, that there will be a revitalization of the worship system in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the priestly line will be used and employed in the activities of the temple. And Rabbi, I'd like you to finish our conversation in this section of Leviticus 8 with a teaching for us, as we have said so many times in our conversations, the Lord is the God of details. And I am very interested in Leviticus chapter 8. When you get to the latter part, Moses slaughtered the animal, took some of its blood, put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. And then the same thing for Aaron's sons. Why so specific and why those body parts? What do you think the lesson is here? The first thing that I have to say and be totally honest is that it's very humbling that there are things that we don't understand. That's the first thing that I have to say, because we're talking about certainly things that are mystical in nature in terms of why it's specifically done this way or that way. But I'll tell you this, the message to us is that God is telling us this is how it works. Uh, I once had a, a, a friend who, who made the comparison, and he said, you know, sometimes you can write an email to someone, and you're missing one letter or one mark is off, and you get these messages back, you know, fatal error for what you sent. It's quite dramatic. Why doesn't it work? I, I'm, I'm trying to send my email. So there's one little slash that's off here, or I put in a, a dash that's a dash above instead of a dash below. That's how it works. God is the one who created us, and God is the one who created the spiritual uh, uh, world. And even if we don't understand exactly how it works, he's telling us that this is the formula to, to make it work. So sometimes I prefer when I see these kinds of laws, take a step back and take that perspective, instead of trying to delve into the mystical elements, which I probably won't necessarily understand uh, anyway. And that's my approach uh, to dealing with it. We do have things that we call a chok, which is a law that has no explanation to it. And on some level, that's the highest level of law to be able to fulfill, because we're doing it because God told us to, uh, regardless of our ability to understand it. I think that's very honest, that sometimes we don't know the answer. And, and we who study the Bible, we like to make guesses sometimes. And so one commentary that I've read makes the commentary, or the guess, if you will, that the reason the blood of the sacrificial animal was spread from the ear to the thumb to the toe is that we are sinful people, and we need to be forgiven from head to toe, if you will. We, our whole body, our whole being needs to be forgiven, not just our thoughts or our actions, but everything, as the totality of the person might be the symbolism here in the blood from the head to the toe. Beautiful idea, and certainly a message that we absolutely would agree to as well. And the last verse I think I want you and I to discuss is our last verse of this week's portion, and that's Leviticus 8.36. 
Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord had commanded through Moses. What a great statement of faith. What a great thing to write on your tombstone that you did everything that the Lord commanded you to do. Wow. And, and it even says, by the way, the great commentary uh, Rashi, which is a medieval commentary from France, which is the greatest, uh, most thorough running commentary of the Bible. He says the words in Hebrew on here, They didn't veer to the right or to the left. They accepted God's commands. They made sure to study God's commands, and they made sure to fulfill them precisely as God said so. And like you said, it just says it all, that they did it exactly as God commanded them. And I want to emphasize that also means with purity of thought, not just the actions, but they did it, and they did it because God told them to do so. And that's a critical point as well. It wasn't, oh, I now understand all the logic. It all makes sense to me. Now I'll go ahead and do it. But it's, this is what God said, and this is what we have to do. We have always enjoyed listening to the Word of God and studying it together. And this week's Torah portion with the title Tzav comes from Leviticus chapter 6, 7, and 8. Rabbi, I always enjoy listening to your teachings and learning together. And may it be said of us that they did all that the Lord had commanded them to do. Amen. How can I possibly add anything uh, to that blessing and wishing you and everyone a Shabbat Shalom and uh, we should just continue to share good news one to the other. Shabbat Shalom, my friend. We'll talk next week. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.